And welcome back to the Word Encounter episode 245, where today we'll be picking up in the book of uh, Philippians as we concluded Ephesians yesterday. And in Philippi, we have uh, a people, a church has been founded there, and apparently Paul has uh, some affinity for the people there. Um, Paul is in prison, probably in Rome. Uh, this is in the AD 60s, some somewhere in there. And um, apparently the people of Philippi, the believers in Philippi, have sent Paul um, some sort of blessing, financial resources, provisions, I don't know. Uh, but apparently he received some gift from them. And in large part, uh, uh, Philippians is in response to that gift and uh, a thanksgiving, if you will. And he takes the opportunity, he being Paul, takes the opportunity to do some teaching and training as he is prone to do. And so um, with that, let's just hop into uh, Philippians. Let's go to chapter one here. Uh, Paul's going to open up uh, with a prayer, and he says, let's drop down to verse eight. He says, um, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ uh, to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's going to go on to give a little report with regard to what's going on with him here. And it says advance of the gospel in verse 12. He says, uh, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So they know he's in prison. And so, but Paul is saying, look, even though I'm in prison, I want you to know that the gospel is being advanced. It says, uh, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. And so Paul is saying, look, everybody knows why I'm here. And that's why the gospel is being advanced, because they know I'm in prison for the cause of Christ. It says in verse 14, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So Paul is saying, look, that because of my situation, because of the circumstances I find myself in, that has actually encouraged other uh, brothers and sisters to speak more uh, fearlessly about the word of God. It says in verse 15, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but other, others out of goodwill. And so <laughs> this is human nature. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of times people uh, see people getting notoriety for whatever reason. And then they'll become jealous and they'll want to replicate it. And so they start doing it. It says in verse 16, these preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not necessarily or not sincerely thinking uh, that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And so uh, he said th these other ones that are preaching out of self ambition, Paul doesn't believe that they're doing it for his detriment. They're just trying to make a name for themselves, if you will. And uh, I guess they're assuming that certain benefits and, 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 and provisions get uh, given to those who are more uh, famous or more well-known or, or whatever. The same thing exists today, exact same thing. In verse 20, it says, my eager, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything 
but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so, you know, Paul is saying here, look, essentially, whether I live or die is kind of irrelevant to me, as long as Christ is highly honored. That's his, if he's going to be more highly honored, if I continue to live in this day, then so be it. If he's going to be more highly honored that I die today, then so be it, as long as he is highly honored. I find the scriptures like this, for me anyway, somewhat uh, difficult to digest because, you know, self-preservation says that, you know, I don't want to die. I don't want to die anytime soon. So can I honestly say that whether I live or die, as long as Christ gets the glory and the honor, it matters not to me. I can't honestly sit here and tell you that that is the way I feel today. That is what I hope to ascend to, to be able to make that statement sincerely, that whether I live or die is irrelevant as long as God gets the glory. Living is Christ, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So here we have that same sort of thing, right? Paul is saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, if I live in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I would choose. So Paul is saying if I live in the flesh, that means I get to do more work. and And so therefore, maybe it is more beneficial for me to live. But, you know, dying gives me game because I get to be with Christ. So I don't know which one I should choose is what Paul is saying, if he had a choice. I am torn between the two. I long to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Jesus kind of said the opposite, right? Jesus said, it is better that I go. Then I stay because when I go, I get to send the one, the comforter who gets to reside within you. <clears throat> and Paul is saying, well, it's probably better that I stay. In verse 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your uh, life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let, let, let's read that again. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I say that, I'm saying that to myself. Mike, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think this is something we need to challenge ourselves on a regular basis. Are we living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are we living a life worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made? Are we living a life worthy of the recognition of why Jesus gave himself up? Do we live with that recognition? Do we sincerely understand the depths of that sacrifice? Do we sincerely understand what the resurrection meant to us? If we did, then would we struggle living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is it because that we're not 100% totally and completely sold out on really truly understanding what that sacrifice was all about? As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together, 
for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. That's a, that's a mission statement basically for the church, right? It says we are to be standing in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being afraid of any obstacles posed by man. Verse 29, for it has been granted on you, or for, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for him. Ugh. To believe in Christ is to also recognize and participate in his suffering. What is his suffering? It wasn't just the cross. His suffering was he went against the grain. He went against the grain of the theology at the time. He did not back down from the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. He continuously pointed out to them the failing in their thinking. He was not interested in man's reward system. He was not interested in man's monetary system for personal gain. All these things, in my opinion, are categorized under sufferings. But also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let's go on to chapter 2. Christian humility, verse 3. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And so this is what we mean when we say other-oriented. We're to be living a life that's other-oriented, where we're concerned about the well-being of others to the point of inspiring action, to do something about the well-being of others. See, a lot of people uh, will use the well-being of others in order to promote themselves. You know, they will publicize and promote money that they've given to this cause or that cause. See, because they're looking to be elevated. They're looking to be raised in stature. And so their motivations are out of whack. That's not living a life uh, uh, motivated uh, by being other-oriented, by being concerned about others. That, in fact, is a demonstration about your concern with regard to yourself. See, but when we're other oriented in the shadows, you know, when we're other oriented, when nobody knows, that's true other orientation. Because we're not looking to get anything out of it except to please the Lord. Christ's humility and exaltation, verse five, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality to God as something to be exploited. Jesus was God, but he wasn't going to exploit his godliness. You see, he could have called down legions of angels as an army to rescue him from the cross. He did not do that. He chose not to do that. He could have, but he didn't. See, it says, who existed, uh, existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, he emptied himself of his divine nature. 
he emptied himself of his godliness by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, taking on the form of man, he, limp, he emptied himself of his godly attributes. He did it, his own personal choice, he did it. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's interesting. Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, in the heavens, on the earth, and in hell. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of, the God, of God the Father. It says every tongue. That means that there are unbelieving tongues that are going to confess Jesus is Lord, but because they didn't do it uh, uh, in their lifetimes, they're not going to have access to eternity, at least eternity in heaven. But every tongue will confess you know, either by their own personal choice or apparently under duress. <laughs> Lights in the world. It says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does this mean, work out your own salvation? Well, when you confess Jesus as Lord, you are already saved, okay? But working out your salvation, you know, you still have a life to live. And so <clears throat> what, you, uh, what working out your own salvation uh, probably means, at least in my opinion, is that uh, um, as you uh, live your post-confession life, that you are now uh, living for the cause of Christ. And, and so you are working out your salvation. You are now in obedience to God. You are doing things that he is calling on you to do. You are working out the salvation that you've already received. You see, it's like, it's like accepting a job, but you haven't performed the job yet until you start going and actually executing the job. So you accepted the job, you've got this new title, but now you have to work out the title. You had the title when you accepted the job, right? But you hadn't done anything yet. <clears throat> For it is God who is working in you both, uh, excuse me, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. This is a huge one. Sometimes doing what you're supposed to do isn't enough. <laughs> you have to do what you're supposed to do with the right attitude. Just doing, doing, performing the task at hand but doing it begrudgingly, doing it while grumbling, doing it while complaining, doing it while arguing with others, that's not good enough. Do it with a joyful heart. Do it with the right attitude. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, who are uh, faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. So how do you shine like stars in the world? You hold firm to the word of life. You hold firm to the word. 
That's how you shine in the darkness. That's how you shine in a perverted generation. You hold firm to the word. Let's go on to chapter 3. It says, knowing Christ. Paul warns, watch out for the dogs. <laughs> watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, those who are demanding that people be circumcised, that men be circumcised in order to be believers. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. So Paul is saying, look, we are believers in Christ. We are full Christians. We don't have to uh, 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 subscribe to this notion that you have to be circumcised. See, we do not put our confidence in the flesh. And then Paul goes on and he says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. He says, look, we don't put confidence in the flesh, but if you want to talk about confidence in the flesh, I have more reasons than all to have confidence in the flesh. Let me explain. He says, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day uh, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew um, born of Hebrews regarding the law. I was a Pharisee regarding zeal. Heck, I persecuted the church regarding the righteousness that is the law. I was blameless. He says in verse seven, but everything uh, that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ Jesus. He says in verse eight, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing uh, Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung and consider them manure. See, he says, out of all, the, I consider all of these things as of nothing. Every, I've lost every, everything and everything that I've lost, I consider nothing. Why? So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. See? So Paul is recognizing and explaining by adhering to the law, then you, in fact, uh, can boast in your adherence of the law, and therefore you can uh, uh, approach and achieve righteousness through your own efforts if it's based on obedience. Because in obedience, you have to do something. See? Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. A lot of times when people quote this verse, they say, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. And they stop right there. Paul goes, but it, he goes further than that, though. See, it's not complete without the next part. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship or the knowing of his sufferings being familiar with his sufferings is equal to knowing the power of his resurrection. That's the part that we don't like. That's the part that I don't like, but it's there. And then it says, this is even worse, being conformed to his death. 
My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, being formed and fashioned by his death. In order to know the power of the resurrection, of his resurrection, we have to know the depths of his sufferings and we have to understand the, the, the uh, or we have to uh, uh, identify with his painful death. Then we can understand the power of the resurrection. We can't do one without the other. Let's go on to verse 12. It says, reaching forward to God's goal. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, or already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, of the perfection. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. If there's anything of a practical nature that we can glean from many, many, many wise impartations in the word, Forgetting what has taken place in the past and reaching forward to what is ahead ranks high up there. So many of us allow our past to hold on to us for dear life. And we hold on to it for dear life. And we don't allow ourselves to reach forward. And so we stay in the past. We live in the past. Everything is in the past, past pains, past hurts, past victories, you know, all of these memories and whatnot. And we want to go back to the past so much so that we can't think or plan or do anything relative to the future. And so we just reside back there. We stay back there. We die back there. No matter what your successes or failures in the past, you have to reach forward. You have to keep moving forward. Don't let the mistakes or the successes of the past uh, hold you back restrain you from moving forward, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. Therefore, let all of us uh, who are mature think this way. And if you uh, think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. So, so Paul is saying, let all of us who are mature think this way. Think that, you know, we got to keep going forward. We got to keep moving forward. We can't just sit on our laurels or disappointments or whatever that uh, uh, took place in the past. We have to forget that stuff. We have to keep going. Then he says in verse 16, in any case, we should live up to uh, whether we should, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. So whatever measure of truth that you have, live up to that. Don't live up to truth that you haven't attained. Don't try, I should say, don't try to live up to truth that you haven't attained. You need a revelation. God progressively reveals stuff to us. So as he progressively reveals stuff to us, live up to those things that he is progressively revealing to you. You don't, you don't teach a five-year-old how to drive a car. He's not ready yet. But as he gets 14, 15, and 16, as the maturity level climbs, now you can start thinking about how do I introduce, uh, introduce driving to this child. So live up to whatever truth that you have attained. Verse 18, for I have often told you, and I'll say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. I don't need to add anything to that. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Amen. And the final chapter in chapter 4, Paul gives some practical counsel. He says in verse 2, I urge you, Diah, and I urge Sintichi. I knew I was going to blow this. Sintichi. Yeah, these are two women. To agree in the Lord. Apparently there was some disagreement between these two uh, women. And so Paul is urging them. Apparently they're, they're, they're uh, two prominent women in the congregation and they're at disagreement over something. So Paul is urging the leaders to um, get them to agree in the Lord. You know, and so he's dealing with, you know, he's dealing with practical matters. Whenever you have an organization of people, you're going to have people problems. And, uh, and you can't let those people problems supersede the mission of the organization because they're there in the first uh, in the first place because there's agreement on the goal there's agreement on the mission and usually when we have organizations there's agreement on what we're trying to do where disagreements tend to arise is in the path and how to get there and sometimes people let that take the whole organization off track can't allow that He says, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. So apparently they've been a help to Paul in his in his uh, in his missionary uh, in his mission trips. And and he wants to see whatever issue this is between them resolved so that the effectiveness of the congregation is not compromised. Then he says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and uh, petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. I use this a lot, you know, because uh, life has a way of, of, of beating you upside the head. And Paul is saying, don't worry about anything, but in everything, in all situations and circumstances, through prayer and petition, through prayer and fervent prayer, repeated prayer, consistent prayer, with thanksgiving, you know, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which doesn't make any sense, you know, a peace that doesn't make any sense under these circumstances will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral uh, excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Fix your mind on the things that are good, that are praiseworthy, that are excellent. Don't fix your mind on those things that we, we tend to fix our minds on with regard to the negative stuff. He says, don't, don't fix your mind there. Don't fix your mind there. Keep your eyes on the prize. 
In verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in God greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul is saying, look, I keep my perspective right, whether I have plenty or whether I have nothing. Because he knows that he has an abundance in Christ and he is able to do all things through him who strengthens him. Amen, amen, and amen. And then Paul leaves and says, and may God, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And with that, Paul concludes his letter to the Philippians. Tomorrow we will pick it up in, uh, what is tomorrow, in Colossians. And um, as is always the case, Jesus sends out his, his proposition to all of us. <laughs> he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will not be put to shame and you will be saved. That is the guarantee from God. Question is, do you believe them? Simple as that. Everybody, take care. Stay safe. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And should he grace us with another day of life, we'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.